This is Alexander Sadiq and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. <laughs> so, I remember when the casting was first announced for these and uh, when that first trailer dropped and I watched this and my first thought was this is gonna make so many old men so mad. Hello and welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode nine of season three of the Star's End podcast. Today, we're going to jump ahead from Prelude to Foundation to Forward the Foundation and talk about the first section dedicated to Eno Demerzel. And in honor of that, we have a very special guest this week, Daniil Adrian Case, known on Twitter as at Stratotron. Daniil, sharing the, the name of uh, our favorite character here from, uh, from Asimov's Robot Stories. Uh, as is my habit, I am not going to give you a big introduction. I'm going to let you give yourself an introduction. So I'm going to toss it over to you. Daniil, take it away. Introduce yourself. Hi. Uh, you pretty much covered most of it. I mean, I just exist on Twitter. And I know you guys from various things, uh, mostly Star Trek, I think. Um, Star Trek being one of the big things that I do on the internet. Star Trek is what brought us together. It is. It was, yes, for so many of us. And continues to, really. Dan just went to Mission Chicago and uh, and had some experiences there. Yes. Which we lived vicariously. Joseph and I had to live vicariously through Dan's, uh, Dan's well, experiences. Maybe. Yeah, how great was that recording? Yes. The recording, which we're yes. going to hear again and again on this podcast, <laughs> at the beginning of the podcast, and perhaps right now. This is Alexander Sadiq, and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. Oh, there it was. I'll just add it in during the editing process. <laughs> it's the only plug we have from a cast member or, or anyone is our Alexander Sadiq plug. So uh, that's, that's going to be right in there. And as many times as I can squeeze it into the podcast. I love last that time, it exists. I, I only put it in three times last time, and most people probably didn't hear the third one because it was all the way at the end. After like our exit, I stuck it in one more time, just to, mm -hmm. along with a couple of Captain Pike beeps. I heard the Captain Pike beeps. I love those. Honestly, Did you? I, I was a little worried about the Captain Pike beeps because I was I... afraid that some of the humor may have been a little tiny bit ableist. Uh, um, 
you know, I thought it was all right. Uh, I cut one. I cut one comment out. Okay, gosh, you know, okay, that thank you. I, you know, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. We should have been more careful with that. I, yeah, as a disabled person, it came out okay to me. Okay, okay, well, I'm glad to hear that. As the local Captain Pike scholar, as someone who does run a Captain Pike account on Twitter, um, it just made me happy. I felt like there were two of my favorite things that were together, and I was like. Yes. That's what we want to do. We want to we want to make people happy. So, so there we learned something about you that you didn't mention. It's your interest in Captain Pike. So yeah, I, I guess don't you're tell people about the Twitter account. Okay, no. But I guess you're <laughs> pretty excited about Strange New Worlds coming out then. God, I'm so hyped. Yeah, we're all I, I'm I'm pretty hyped. Oh yeah, me too. It's funny, I've just been watching a TV show called The Librarians. I don't know if any of you saw I've this. Seen all yes. of it. You have. It, Those it, were it, my favorite movies as a kid, and the show was so good. It was, I mean, it strikes me as a little bit like if Doctor Who and Warehouse 13 had a baby. Oh, yeah, very much. <laughs> and then it was a glorious Indiana Jones spoof. I mean, you know, there's a lot of that. And, and but Rebecca Romaine is, is in it. Yeah. And of course, mm-hmm. she's going to be number one in Strange New Worlds. So, uh, a I don't lot know. Of, Everything, everything's uh, crossover. Jonathan Frakes directed a ton of that show. Did he? He did. Like several episodes. Uh, John yeah. Delancey was in an episode, and I laughed very, very hard about it. I haven't gotten there yet. I uh, we're only we've only watched about four episodes. I think there's forty something. Yeah, uh, we've gotten to where John LaRoquette, John LaRoquette appears, but mm. uh, not uh, not yet John yeah. Delancey. So this is something to look forward to. Oh yeah, so for sure. What more can we elicit from you? I, I know you have a. Um, there's a lot of music in in your life. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I make chiptune music. Uh, talk about ambient, that a little bit. Explain that to us old guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, I take old video game consoles, so Game Boys, uh, old Nintendos, Super Nintendos, Commodore 64s, um, mostly software versions of them, and I use them to make kind of ambient background music. That's really uh, cool. Lately, I've been doing stuff with. 90s 90s DOS sample trackers which is a little different but I'm still using a lot of the old video game stuff with it and lately that's been me taking punk music and making abominations out of it okay I know there's at least a little bit of that on your main Twitter account Stratatron uh, yeah I put a lot of stuff on that but as, as I'm just making music uh, Stratatron is actually the handle I use as a musician so so who's your favorite? That's where punk it came band? from. <sighs> Modern punk, anti-flag. Okay, I don't even, don't even know who they are. Um, <laughs> but but I thought you were going to like, be like you know, super expert, and you were going to have some kind of really detailed mm-hmm. technical classic, conversation. Classic with- punk, okay. bad religion. Mm, okay, um, cool. I love no X, no FX. Yes, them too, for sure. All I right. grew up in a lot of that, so that kind of stuff. Uh, it runs pretty deep, despite me, you know, making something that feels like the farthest thing from it. <laughs> Joseph, so were you what? a punker back in the day? No, but I, I like all sorts of genres of music. And, and yeah, I mean, really got into the Sex Pistols in 86. Mm. You and, have my and, respect. And the Clash. You Joseph have my respect. A, all right. Joseph is a many-layered onion. You know, we keep yeah. peeling away layers and finding out more, uh, more onion underneath. So, but I probably just I'm, I'm I'm 
mainly this well uh, my favorite band is the stones and they're well they have shattered but aside from that they're not very punk <laughs> at all no but they're fun oh yeah so uh tell us about then your interest in asimov and daniel obviously you've taken daniel's name and that's the name that you go by so tell us about uh daniel and your your apparent uh love for the character so so I was handed, I, I grew up on kind of old sci-fi stuff just in general, um, but I was handed a copy of iRobot when I was like seven, eight, maybe. Okay. Um, I was after school program. I was super bored. I was always running out of things to read as a kid. And somebody handed me this book and I, I absolutely devoured it. Like, I just, I blasted through it. I fell in love with the Powell and Donovan stories in particular. Hmm, might've had something to do with me being a short, angry redhead. <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit. Just, I was a bit of a hothead as a kid. So I wonder why I fell in love with that character so easy. And one of the stories that's in there, uh, evidence, the story about Stephen Byerly, who basically robot mayor, that story really caught my attention. The idea of humanoid robots that way was something that caught my attention. And when I was in high school, I was 15, uh, one of my English teachers who saw that I really enjoyed these stories went, ooh, have you read the novels? And I went, no, because I hadn't gotten around to them and I hadn't been able to find them anywhere. So he throws the caves of steel at me almost literally like almost literally throws the book at me and i i'm not big on mysteries i never have been and i just really really enjoyed this book particularly um because i'm you know the three laws and their caveats and that kind of thing are interesting to me um the way that it dove into some of that stuff and I read the entire series in probably a month and I don't read particularly fast. So I just, I don't know, there was something about these characters, even though I do not like Elijah Bailey very much. <laughs> I almost feel bad saying it, but I just, he never, you know, as a protagonist, I never really was super, uh, what's the right word? I was never super sympathetic to the dude and possibly because I'm sorry, but if you don't like robots and you're in an Asimov novel, I, I don't trust you. <laughs> I mean, the part of it that I never really understood was why Daniil likes Elijah so much. You know why? I know. <laughs> I, when I, when I read those books for the first time, I'm sitting there going, honey, why? <laughs> why are you letting yourself be treated this way? <laughs> and by the time you get to the fourth book, um, by the time I got to the fourth book, I said I read them all within about a month. And I think that's actually the first three. I think I didn't find the fourth one until a couple years later because our school library didn't have it. So a couple years later, I found Robots and Empire. And... I had been slightly ambivalent about reading it because I didn't like the robots of Dawn very much, 
um, it has a lot of the same pitfalls to me as the gods themselves does, <laughs> which to me is just a little on the, do we really got to go there? Do we really got to go there <laughs> in the um, more intimate departments? Uh, yeah. Well. Mm -hmm. It's, it's Asimov's weird phase, as I like yeah. to say. He, he got a little weird in the 80s with that stuff. He did. And yeah. so I was a little... Hmm? I was going to say, you got to give him props on the gods themselves, though, to have actual alien aliens. I mean, And polyamory. I will give yeah. him that. It just was, you know... It was, I, I tried rereading it again because I think we actually have a copy of it on our bookshelf in my living room. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Mm. I'm going to try really hard. And uh, so I was a little, little reluctant about picking up Robots and Empire, but robot novel, I'm a completionist. I wanted to, I wanted to finish the series and it quickly became probably one of my favorite books. I mean, if you don't like Elijah, then, you know, Robots, uh, robots and Empire is great. <laughs> not in it. Well, <laughs> you, you that was, so that was not necessarily part of it, but it was it showed a side of that character that we didn't see until the end really right because we do see him as an old man dying right well and we don't see him as daniel sees him until that book interesting and so seeing the way that daniel felt about elijah and why he felt that way was like okay this makes a little more sense to me now because i understand this person's kind of a jerk but they challenge me so right. I can understand that. But then I, I was probably 17 when I read that. And that was around the time when I was starting to play around with the idea of different names and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. figuring out that I am non-binary. And it was also a time where as a skeptic, starting to kind of, and as a secular humanist, starting to kind of figure that kind of thing out and going, okay, so what are my frameworks for things? Right. How do I quantify the way that I think about the world? And part of that was Star Trek. Because <laughs> of course it was, right? Of course. And part of that was saying, well, you know, what's really interesting is that uh, going back to evidence again and parallels between the, the characters of Stephen Byerly and Daniel Olivaugh, uh, there's a part in that story where Susan Calvin mentions that the three laws, basically, like there's no way to tell the difference between a humanoid robot and just a really, really good man. Right. Because you are supposed to put your fellow man above, your, above your, yourself. And you're supposed to listen to people who know better than you. You're supposed to defer to experts. You're supposed to preserve your own existence. Like, that's just kind of how being a person works too. And the more I kind of went through these books and thought about it over the years, the more it was like, you know what? I like this. I like this character. I feel like if I'm going to steal anybody's name, this might be it. And then I read the prequels and I was, uh, after reading the last three, because there's six total and then the prequels, um, for foundations. So I read the last, like that second trilogy, 
got really, really mad at the end of Foundation and Earth. Right. I think we all did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're really looking forward to that you know, as we go through these stories. Got really, really, really. Because upset if there's anyone the more one. irritating than Elijah Bailey or Harry Seldon, it's Golan Treviz, who is the hero of the sequels, who is just a gigantic, colossal asshole. Thank you. Yes, yes, he is. But anyway. But going through those and at the end being like, you know, you, you get to the end of that book and you're like, Daniel, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What do you mean, sir? Well, it's funny because we've noted that. And, and I think part of that has to do with the chronological order in which the books were written, that when mm -hmm. the sequels were written, he hadn't developed the Edo Demerzel character at all. Yeah. And so he's got Daniel being like a much more deferential robot at the end of, of, of the sequels, whereas in the prequels, he's much more human-like, living with humans, fitting in with humans, and trying to be mm -hmm. one. So uh, that, you know, I think that I, I, I really, I, I chalk that up to the fact that the sequels were written first. And it's funny For that sure. you should mention evidence, because in the section that we read, read today of Forward the Foundation, there is a sort of a scene very reminiscent of evidence where there is. they have yeah. to teach Demerzel to laugh so the, that the he entire pass I call that the 40 year long brick joke because in the caves of steel <laughs> Bailey teaches Daniel how to smile there you go <laughs> and oh. apparently by the time you get to uh by the time you get to forward he still doesn't do it very often mm -hmm. I mean it does lead to one of the recurring things here which is what the hell was he doing for 20,000 years <laughs> Like he's yeah. been living with humans for 20,000 years. He doesn't know how to laugh, you know, like he's just been so serious all the time. <laughs> Maybe he's well, such a serious and dignified man. It's beneath him. <laughs> might've been one of the things he had to delete to make room for, you know, important things. Right. He deleted his laughing. So that's what it is. Yeah. It was over in the archive files. That's you know. right. <laughs> <laughs> you think he could have just accessed that file? No, because they're on the moon. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> no, no, but in in this is this is in forward the foundation or not? Oh, oh, the archives are on the moon, right? Okay, yeah, sorry. that's what I'm saying. Sorry. Is he yes, probably right. left it all there? He left it on the moon. Yeah, yeah, it all makes sense now. It all makes perfect sense. <laughs> but like that was a question that I asked, you know, about about um, finding Harry Seldon. Like supposedly, Daniil has been looking for psychohistory specifically by name, because Han Fostolf used the word psychohistory That's in right. the robot novels. And so Daniil has been looking for someone to develop psychohistory for 20,000 years. And he only just stumbles over Harry, you know, as, as the prequels are beginning. And you, you just kind of ask yourself, like, what, what was going on in there? I mean, I guess he was building a galactic empire and doing whatever he was whatever else i don't know yeah. it's, it's, it's a big gap fixed that though a little bit because a he has no problem retconning things Literally. which we know but also like we never really i don't is it ever defined when like the the time scale on which the empire keeps time like the I don't remember what it is, like the galactic era or something like that, how they define the start of that, because he could have cut this almost in half if he would have just given that some abstract time way in the past. Hmm. 
and been like, no, it's only been like 12,000 years. Even so, 12,000 years, it's a long right. time. You think yeah, about what humans Yeah, but that's slightly more plausible uh, than 20. Okay. Not by much, sure. but it would have helped a little. Sure. Fine. <laughs> Whatever yeah, you say. I'm trying to be helpful. <laughs> and Asimov somewhere appreciates it. Uh, I mean, I, it, it's funny. We, we've been looking at some of uh, Asimov's essays in which he talks about things like psychohistory and, and stuff, because we're going to we're going to talk about some of those things uh, as, a, as a spoiler to what, what where this podcast is going. And at one point in one of the essays that I, I was reading, he talks about how um, he doesn't go back and rewrite things, you know, which is pretty evident from his writing. But it's, yeah. it's good to hear him say it, you know, that, you know. He made some joke about how, you know, well, he would have fixed it, but he doesn't do that. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't go back and, and rewrite. Sure. And uh, I mean, you know, the guy wrote a lot, you know, you, you can't do a lot of rewrites if you're going to write 500 or so books. You, you, you can't be doing a lot of rewriting. That's fair. And, and to be fair, you know, I mean, I, I do a tiny, tiny amount of writing myself. Uh, I have done it as a, well, it doesn't matter. And, and I hate rewriting. I hate it. <laughs> I just hate it. <laughs> I can't stand. I can barely reread what I've written, let alone rewrite it. So I get it. I understand it, Isaac. It's, 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 a, it's a tough procedure. It really is. So should we talk about Forward the Foundation or are we still, uh, do we still? Yeah. Some Let's go forward. Before we do, a uh, quick yes. note. Oh, yes. I just want to point out we're recording on April 23rd, 2022. Uh, uh, I think it's probably worth mentioning that our website went live on April 25th last year. Ooh. And our first episode dropped on April 26th. So this is very close to our one year anniversary. Wow. wow. Well, happy oh, birthday awesome. to our Congratulations, podcast. Congratulations, you guys. We should have baked ourselves a we cake. Sh- we should have given ourselves a present. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a present for us to have you with us, Daniel. To have right. to have Daniel with us. All right. So I'm going to try to do this as efficiently as possible. I've got a little tiny bit of notes for every single one of these little subchapters. There are 25 of them in this first section entitled Edo Demerzel. So just as a tiny little bit of background, eight years have passed since Harry and Doors went around on their journey around Trantor in Prelude Foundation. Harry has gone back to the university. He has brought Hugo Amaril with him. Uh, Amaril is his, his number two in developing psychohistory. And we have a little conversation about Demerzel and what's going on with him. And now he's screwing up the screwing up the empire. And we are introduced to the character of Jojo Joranum, which I got to say over the many, many years of Asimov writing, he never got better at giving people names. Uh, but Jojo Jordan is a demagogue of the old school um, who is out there drumming up all kinds of populist trouble. Uh, apparently, he wants to, uh, you know, he wants to take over the empire. Harry is then seen walking across the campus and stumbles over a Joranum rally where people are chanting Jojo, Jojo. And Harry says, well, this this uh, there's no permit for this. What's going on? He he gets up on stage. He puts uh Jornum's number two, this gentleman named Namardi, into a headlock and basically threatens to crush his larynx uh, and, uh, you know, does the twist and thing, which I love it. I, I, I just can't get enough of Harry doing martial arts, really. It's one of my favorite things about the prequels is Harry, the uh, Harry, the, the, the ninja twister. Uh, anyway, so Harry breaks up the rally, 
goes home and tells Doris about it. She is predictably not very happy about that. Uh, she doesn't like Harry putting himself in danger. I mean, she's still operating under this very strong compulsion to protect him and does not like him to go off and take chances. They have a conversation about robots because you know we've established that Demerzel is a robot. And she mentions this concept of minimalism that Harry in developing psychohistory believes that you have to do the minimum amount to change history. And she tells him that although Demerzel slash Daniil has the ability to manipulate emotions, he has to do it in the, the most minimal way possible because he can't predict what all of the secondary effects will be, all of the unintended consequences. So he may not be able to just go out and get rid of Joranum because that would take too much. Uh, and that, that is a concept, going back to Robots and Empire, that's a concept that Giscard was constantly talking about, how um, he could only do the minimal amount because he was afraid of what the consequences might be. So that that's consistent, at least, with Robots and Empire. And they continue to talk about it. And interestingly, they continue to dance around Doors' status. Um, we, we continue to get these hints that Harry knows that Doors is a robot, but he would, doesn't want to say it out loud. You know, they really never do at, at this point. Uh, but they talk about how all of this stuff applies to Doors as well. Uh, Harry gets a note from Jojo. Jojo wants to talk. So they, they have a little meeting with Jojo and Namarty and Harry and Rach. And Jojo, like everybody else in the prequels, wants psychohistory because he wants to use it to help his cause, which is a very populist cause. Uh, but it, he does talk a lot about equality, which is very appealing to people from Dahl who feel very downtrodden. And it is very appealing to Rach who hears Jojo's plans. Harry, of course, as usual, denies that he has any kind of working model of psychohistory that would help Jojo and says he wouldn't anyway, although he does admit that he's thinking of the empire all the time. And at the end of their, their conversation, something's bothering Harry, which we'll get to later. Uh, then we see a conversation between Jojo and Namarty where they talk about Rach. Uh, they, Jojo noticed how interested Rach was in, um, in his agenda. And they're going to go after Rach and they're going to try to get Rach to, uh, to follow Jojo. And in a conversation between Harry and Rach, Rach admits to having some sympathy for Jojo's plans and the, the idea of equality for the Dalites and everyone else. Um, we have another conversation between Selden and Doors where she thinks about how she does feel something for him. She's not quite sure what it is, but she thinks about him a lot and she thinks more easily when he's around and she worries about him. So that was kind of an interesting insight into Doors' emotional state and what, what love is for Doors. And then Harry tells Doors that he suspects that Jojo is not from where he says he is. He claims to be from a planet called Nishaya. And if you watch the TV show very carefully, there is a reference to Nishaya when Brother Day is walking the spiral and he walks with this old man for a while. The old man says he is from Nishaya. So they, they clearly threw that in there as a, a little Easter egg for those of us fighting our way through the prequel. John, I am amazed that you picked that up. <laughs> like that's well, wow. I knew it sounded familiar. There it is. I actually picked it up while watching the TV show. 
I, I was saying to my, cause I was reading forward the foundation at the time. Oh, okay. And I was like, boy, that is shy. That sounds familiar. So there, I, I can't take too much credit for it, but there it is a little TV Easter egg. Uh, but Harry suspects that Jojo, far from being from Nishaya, is actually from Mycogen, one of the places we went in Prelude to Foundation. And he thinks that's significant and maybe can use it against Mycogen. And he talks to Doris about it. And then Harry finally has a meeting with Demerzel, where they sit and, and have a conversation. Demerzel's very happy to have Harry to dinner. So he doesn't have to eat because he has to eat when, when other people are around. But with Harry, he can kind of let his robotic hair down and not eat and kind of admit that he's a robot. They talk about Joranum. They talk about the decline of the empire. Daniil stresses once again that he can't do very much, even with his emotion controlling powers. Um, in the next section, we sort of see Harry doom scrolling through the, the news. I, I, I just was reminded of myself looking through Twitter and looking at all of the horrible news from around the world. Harry is looking for horrible news from around, uh, from around the galaxy. And um, the only thing he really finds is significant is that in Dahl, a bunch of Joranomites have been elected to various local offices. And uh, he decides he's going to send Rach to Dahl to try to infiltrate Joranom's operation. But he has to admit to himself that he doesn't completely trust Rach. Because he can see how attracted Rach is to the to Jornum's ideas. Then uh, we see Rach in uh, Billabotten. He goes and gets a, a treat, a Coke icer. I have no idea what it was. Uh, gets in a fight, does the twisty stuff again, gets arrested, not by the police, but by somebody who says he's from the Jornum Guard. Uh, then we switch to Cleon and Demerzel where Cleon says he's, he's heard about what happened with Jojo and the, and the rally, and he wants to see Harry. He, he demands that Demerzel bring Harry to see him. Uh, we see Rach trying to get to see Jojo. I mean, having some of these, I'm sure Joseph appreciated all the Dalai lingo that uh, was being thrown around. I really felt like I was back in the 1950s, and, and although I actually, I'm not that old, but anyway, <laughs> it was, it was pretty, uh, Anyway, whatever. And then, uh, and then Harry is visiting Cleon and Cleon tells Harry he expects him to do something. Cleon, like Jojo, fully believes that Harry actually has a fully developed psychohistory that he's using to manipulate things and make decisions, even though Harry actually doesn't. And so Cleon makes it clear to Harry that he expects him to do something about Jojo. And then we see Rach and Jojo having a conversation in which Rach tells Jojo that Demerzel is a robot. Bom, bom, bom. A bit of a shock. And we also see that Rach really is getting more and more sympathetic to Joranum's ideas. Cleon confronts Demerzel. He says, what is this story about you being a robot? It's ridiculous. And, and Demerzel says, of course, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, I'm not a robot. And, uh, and he gets Harry back in there. Cleon gets Harry back in there and says, what should I do? And Harry, uh, and I think maybe a, uh, a throwback to the original Foundation novels, says, Nothing. You should do nothing. You should just let events take their course. And uh, Joranum is on the rise. He's, he's the, the robot story is, is catching on. Uh, but it's apparently Harry has a plan. And in the next scene, we see that Stephen Byerly scene where, where uh, Doors and Harry teach Demerzel how to laugh convincingly like a human being so that he can laugh at the question that he's going to get, which he does. Um, the reporters ask Demerzel, 
are you a robot? And he, <laughs> of course, why, why do you really think I have to answer that question? He never really answers the question. He just says, do, do, you, do I really have to answer that question? Ha ha ha. Must I answer that really? Yeah, really? Is it really necessary to do so? And then uh, we see Cleon playing tennis at the end. Uh, Sunmaster 14 has come out from Mycogen and, uh, and has, has claimed Jojo as one of his own. It's the downfall of Jojo. Cleon actually wants to execute Jojo and Harry says, don't do that. Be benevolent. Although maybe the Mycogenians are going to do it anyway. We don't know. And then the big bomb drops at the end of chapter 25, in which we find out that Demerzel is going to retire, that Cleon wants a new first minister. And the first minister he wants is Harry Seldon. And that's where we end. You know, I've said it before that, uh, you know, that's a, if you started out reading these novels, reading the foundation novels, uh, you would never have realized that Harry Seldon was a one-time first minister of the empire. He seems a lot more obscure than that. And I, and I, and I, I also always wonder for people who read the prequels first, how different the reading of foundation must be knowing how prominent Harry was in the universe. So Daniel, what did you start with I can foundation answer that. or did you start with the prequels? I started with the prequels. Okay. Um, because I tried reading the original trilogy and found it incredibly boring. <laughs> uh, in my defense, I tried reading them when I was about 12. So that was about 14 years ago. And that was a mistake. It's like trying to read The Lord of the Rings at seven or eight, which I also attempted. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's too, it's too tedious. When you have the attention span of a of a twelve year old, truly. But you found the prequels um, to be less tedious. Yeah, because I didn't read those until later. Oh, okay. Um, I had kind of given up on the foundation as a thing. I had read, I read the Empire novels, and I didn't hate them. And I liked the world building, and I was like, okay, I know these are built on you know, the world of foundation. I'll get around to it eventually, but right now I don't want to slog through it. And then the same English teacher who threw the robot novels at me went, okay, now you got to read at the very least these specific foundation novels. So he had me read the prequels first and then I read like second foundation. I think, no, I read, I read Foundation and Empire and then I read Second Foundation, but I skipped the first one because okay. <laughs> I tried to read it. In my defense, I tried and I couldn't make it through it till I was about 21. <laughs> um, so it was very interesting to read these books where, yeah, I mean, Harry Seldon, very, very prominent, obviously, in the prequels. He seems like this very, unwillingly so, but a very powerful man, right? And then you go into, uh, in my case, not having read the first Foundation novel at that point, but then reading the later ones where he is this mythical figure, right? And that makes sense. Okay. Because you because you've seen the prequels. My apologies for the excited dog. Yeah, um because you've seen because you've seen, you know, you've seen that in the prequels, and then you read the first book and you're like, hold on. What happened? 
yeah, like they don't seem to really know who he is. Although I mean, one thing about the the foundation uh, foundation as a novel, he does have an operation with a hundred thousand, at least a hundred thousand people in it, maybe a hundred thousand scientists and their families. So you know more yeah. than. Or yeah, is it 30,000 in their families or something? I mean, it's something like that. Tens but of thousands the, of people working for him. Yeah, but on the scale of the empire, I mean, when you're talking 25,000, 25 million worlds, and I remember this because I was reading the first part of Forward the Foundation today and laughing very hard at the idea that Harry's computer is one of the only one that knows how to, the only ones at the university who knows what US uh, RSS feeds are. Like, <laughs> like, you're over here and you're like, nobody else has feeds just just you and 20 25 million worlds that's that's what is it like trillions of people i believe it said it quadrillions was. even quadrillions even yeah. yeah it's there's just so many people that a hundred thousand people is barely a blip that's true like that's like true. when when you're at that point even just having your name in the Encyclopedia Galactica, it's like, like, think notability requirements on Wikipedia, but like multiplied by a million. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we've agreed that the things, you know, the kind of numbers of people and numbers of worlds, something you really ought not to look too closely at. Because if you do, you're going to find out that it's really untenable. You just couldn't have an empire like that, not without some kind of different structure on top. Yeah, it's very much a relic of that, the fact that it started as a pulp science fiction novel in the 50s. It very much is the relic of that. And I mean, when you're 40 years later, and you're writing this book in like, oh, God, what was it like 1991 that he was writing? Uh, for the foundation maybe late 80s yeah, for, for prelude you know. right yeah. i think uh i think prelude was 1990 and then forward was like 91 and published in 92 because it was shortly after asimov died that yeah. it was published that's right yeah in its in its full form anyway um yeah he started working on it in the late 89 yeah yeah, I mean, there's a process where, you know, which you, you see with a lot of writers where, you know, you write a story or a, a novel and you you pick up the world building mid-world. So you, you start writing in a built world that has a history and you don't really think too much about the history I mean, because it's just a story. It's, you know, you don't realize mm -hmm. when you're starting to write foundation or the first foundation stories that it's going to be like the greatest science fiction trilogy ever. You're just thinking I'm writing a story based on the decline and fall of the Roman empire. Um, you know, the numbers don't have to work. The structure of the empire doesn't really have to, you don't have to think carefully about right. it. But when you go back later and you're trying to retcon stories together and you're trying to make everything make sense, that's where you realize how, how untenable a world you've created. Well, and it's even a little bit of a Star Trek type problem too. It's the same problem that Star Trek has. I, I say problem. I don't think it's a problem. I think it's something that if you go into it with the right mindset, it's fine. But you have to remember that, yeah, you're working in at that point, 40 years later, kind of a retro futurist perspective because you created this, this universe in the context of the science fiction of the time in the fifties or in Star Trek's case in the late sixties, early seventies. 
and science marches on, science fiction marches on, but that doesn't mean that they're not still stories in that universe worth telling. It's just you have to either commit to the bit yeah. or <laughs> you have to retcon a bunch of stuff. And thankfully, in Asimov's case, he committed to the bit because it's it's a lot more fun that way. <laughs> yeah, you have to commit. But it does mean, you know, you've got 25 million worlds in the Galactic Empire. It's It's crazy. No, you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, Star Trek, you know, Star Trek didn't have to do prequels, but they did. And, you know, Enterprise introduced all kinds of new races and parts of the galaxy we'd never seen. And and uh, the technology, you know, especially if you look at Discovery, I mean, the, the, the technology that Discovery had pre-Enterprise, you know, pre-original series, it just doesn't all mesh together. And at some point, you have to just kind of say, <laughs> this is the way we're going. You know, this is it. Too, too bad. And Dr. I mean, Who continuity for the win. Yeah, and they, they did try to explain away a couple of things like the holographic communication, which they Captain Pike decided he didn't like that. What was it? The, I can't remember the reason why, but you know, they reminded created a security risk or something. Yeah, whatever. And, and so, uh, He's so uh, but yet at some point, you just have to say, you know, in our world, a whole bunch of time has passed and there's stuff we can do that they couldn't do in the sixties. And, and there are sensibilities that, that we have now that they didn't have then. And we're just going to have to go with that. And, well, if, and if you look at the original series, they were clearly at the beginning making stuff up as they went along and really didn't pay a lot of attention to continuity anyway. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. well, it's the same thing with foundation. Even I mean, like, uh, I seem to recall you guys talking about this a little bit in the last episode, um, talking about how, and this is, this is the, the bad gross part of gross part of this whole thing where you can make a decision when you're working with a legacy series like this, like foundation or like Star Trek, where you can either decide that you are going to retcon a few things in the, in the service of we don't do things like this anymore this is not the prevailing worldview and it never should have been or you can stick with your weird sexist crap <laughs> and unfortunately asimov did not make the same choice that gene roddenberry and friends did you know it, it, it occurs... in a lot of ways i think he thought he probably right. thought that he was he, he was trying yeah. to he yeah. just never he was close, got it. But... He, he didn't get it. You know, Ugh. he just, yeah. he, some, there's stuff that he did where you look at it and you go, he's, this is his attempt to either be less sexist or less misogynistic or, or to try to introduce ideas. Like, like, well, I mean, one of the ones that occurs to me is this concept of, uh, um, the the southerners the easterners and the westerners you know as the different <laughs> racial groups that they have in the empire and it's just like mm -hmm. god isaac you know really you know and 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 his constant you know harry's constant drooling over doors and it just and i mean i mean look there's nothing wrong look, with sexual attraction as, you know but as a young as a as a young gender queer ace person, I too was highly attracted to Doris Finavoli as a okay. teacher. Okay, <laughs> like she's great. She's honestly, I'm over here going, 
This is like one of the only times Asimov ever wrote a female character semi-well. Yeah. In my opinion, which sucks because like I love Susan Calvin, but come on. Uh, he was not very good at writing women. No, we speculated, in fact, that at the time he was writing Foundation, he probably had not met very many women. I mean, literally, I mean, he grew up with he, you know, his right, mother he was, and he went to like an all male high school. And, you know, he was he he he, he studied subjects in college that were there were not very many women in chemistry at the time. Right. And, and that would have been. Oh, let me see if I've got my math right. Like. Yeah, because foundation, I mean, that was what, 51? No, uh, it was 41. 41 the well, the, first oh, it, no, yeah. you're right. He was writing that around the same time. That would have been around the same time, yeah, that he was writing um, like the really early robot novels. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that was... He was 21 you know, he, years old. He was Right, he was in his 20s, like... And, and had written, had led a very sheltered life and oh, yeah. literally probably had not met very many women. We may no, have been married at like, the time. But then you did and you still couldn't yeah, do no, it. He, well, I mean, and he, you know, he gave himself, he gave himself a lot of leeway. He made excuses for himself. I mean, he wrote whole books about it, you know, about uh -huh. being a dirty old man, you know, and, and just uh -huh. how he felt like he had the right to treat women certain ways because he was famous. And, and uh, who else have we heard that from? And, um, uh -huh. well, let's not know, go he, there. he just never. Well, you know what? Speaking of there, um, Jojo Joranum is an interesting character to me because he is I'm going to completely change gears on everybody. Uh, Jojo Jornum is meant to be sort of the classic populist. And uh, I guess my, my question is, is he a sort of a Trumpy character? Uh, you know, not? I really, really thought about that the entire time I was reading today. I, it was so weird because, I mean, in a way, the last five six years have kind of felt like this weird fever dream right like did any of that really happen mm. it's, and, still it's still yeah, happening yeah 100 yeah, percent. and it was just this really weird thing because i hadn't actually sat down to read for the foundation like all the way through minus needing to reference it for a couple of fics i was writing like once in a while, I'll be writing a fanfic and I'll go, okay, I need to pull this up because I can't remember this detail, this detail, this detail. But I hadn't sat down to actually read it in any, you know, great uh, analytical capacity in a while. And I realized, yeah, a lot of this sounds oddly familiar. And I'm not going to say, you know, in some in that way that science fiction writers look at what's going on and kind of, you know, predict the pattern. Cause I feel like that's a little far out. That's 30 years out. That feels a little far to me. It's just a general sense of, yes, this happens throughout history. Right. I mean, no doubt there were characters so, like Jojo Joranum in Asimov's time and, and, and always have been. It's, right. It's nothing new. Right. But it was just so weird to read it because 
because yeah, I mean, like you said, it, it feels oddly familiar. And then you get to even where they're talking about, okay, these are the promises he's making, but is he going to keep them? And no one really thinks so. Or at least no one that we kind of talk to and see, you know, how they're feeling about it. Right. And like Rach likes the message of equality, right. but for Joranum, it's just a vehicle to, to power. It's right. He doesn't and care. Rach knows that he talks about it even uh, saying like, you know, I don't know that he believes that, but Dahl doesn't want to hear that because hearing these these things that other people are saying about how oh it'll get better it'll get better well that doesn't cool you off when you're sweating to death right is the sentence i think he says which i found to be a very very good turn of phrase considering you know dull as a place and the heat sinks right so i thought that was kind of clever yeah i mean and that's that's the problem if we want to if we want to make the, the the comparison of drawing them to try i think you could probably eat more easily make a uh, comparison to somebody like Yui Long, yeah. but Jornum is pretty bright. He has Mamarty on his side, who is extremely bright. He's seeking out like new inf you know, new information. You know, he wants advice from Harry. There are a lot of very non-Trump-like characteristics. Oh, I, I agree. I found him yeah, much smarter sure. than Trump. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. he's certainly smarter it's, than Trump. It's an optimistic view <laughs> of the demagogue. <laughs> He's also like a, a really, really <laughs> optimistic view that only Asimov could truly have. He's also a left populist, right? Instead of a right populist. So he's, his, right. his message is based on economic inequality, which is why mm -hmm. he's popular in Dahl. There's no, there's no kind of cultural grievance, uh, you know, no xenophobia uh, in this message that we can tell. That's true. Based. So, right. um, but, you know, it is, I mean, you know, we, we live in an age of, I mean, it's not just Trump, like all over the world, there's these kind of, um, you know, anti-democratic populist movements, right? Sort of authoritarian populism that that's coming up and that, so there is something reminiscent about it here in that, um, you know, Jojo is certainly figured as someone who is just sort of scaling the ladder of the people's acclaim in, in order to seize power. And what's interesting, really, because just thinking about it, as I was reading it, I'm going, you know, that sounds great, but like, you still don't really want to overthrow the empire. You just want to run it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, come on, man, if you're going to go for it, go all the way. Don't be a wuss. <laughs> Yeah, Neil, I'm gonna watch out for you. <laughs> I picked this name for a reason, man. Twenty thousand years the from empire, now, the empire is dying. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> I just think about my own sort of doom scrolling through Twitter, and like you know, my my Twitter is kind of half reporters and and uh and, and commentators and half star trek more and a little slice of a few other things but uh but um i love the star trek part it's there to counterbalance all of the the doom but the doom has gotten very doomy recently i mean it's it seems very popular right now to talk about whether vladimir putin is going to use nuclear weapons or not and i'm like 
Oh my God. You know, that's just not something I want to contemplate. Unfortunately, we have to. Oh, you know, I, I just find it so nostalgic for the, for the, like the early eighties, you know, and. <laughs> oh God, don't get me started on early eighties, nuclear war sci-fi, because I could go on about that for a while. That's the other stuff I grew up on. Oh goodness. Yeah. I, I lived through, I mean, you know, the seventies really. And, uh, I think a lot of people really believed that there was going to be world war three there was going to be nuclear annihilation and we knew that we had no defense you know the 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 concept was this thing called appropriately called mad which stands for mutually assured destruction destruction that they would never attack us because they knew if they did we would we would you know if they destroyed us we would destroy them and so there was no point in doing it and uh it was not a very comforting thought Um, well there's always duck and cover yeah, duck and cover. See, by the time I was like in, in school, they had just realized the duck and cover was just ridiculous. We, we actually read about duck and cover as being like totally, you know, like that students were told, put yourself underneath a table so yeah. that you'll get some kind of protection from I don't know what. And by the time I was there, then the weapons, you know, by the 70s and 80s had gotten orders of magnitude more powerful it was just you know there was no defense there was there was no survivability of nuclear you didn't want to survive a nuclear war because it was going to be like a post-apocalyptic hellscape so you you basically wanted a nuclear bomb to drop on you not far enough away that you would survive because it it would be just really unsurvivable so like the the classic tom lehrer song we will all go together when we go (laughs) yeah you know what's interesting now that I'm thinking about this? Um, it is interesting to think about throughout like throughout the foundation series, the way that all of it up until the prequels being written during the Cold War. Well, really how that influences even it. World I War II. Because, I mean the, the first stories were written during yeah. World War II. Yeah. Right. I just, you know, specifically I'm thinking about um, like with a couple of the later ones, um, not just Foundation, but also the robot novels and some of the short stories, uh, thinking about how, um, like you're talking about when we're talking about mutually assured destruction and the threat of nuclear winter, et cetera, et cetera, playing into even in Robots and Empire, that being a fairly, fairly sizable part of that book. <laughs> toward the end and then the prequels being not post cold war but right at the tail end of it and yeah. how different like how that changes the tone of those I mean, things in some ways it's a, he had a very I, I think he had a very optimistic view of the cold war if you think about it when you know even when you when you go to the um the beginnings of foundation I mean, he's basically skipped over the whole capitalism versus communism thing. And somehow we have survived and it's not really a topic. And we've gone out and we've populated the, the galaxy and we were, you know, in uh, caves of steel, um, that kind of internal strife within earth has just been jumped over. And, mm-hmm. and even, you know, even in, in robots and empire, not to spoil it too much for people um, you know, the, the solution, the reason why earth is radiated 
is because Giscard has allowed it to happen. They've increased the natural radiation of the planet. If you go back and read Pebble in the Sky, which is one of the early Empire novels, we see an irradiated Earth. I don't think we're specifically told that there was a war, but it's heavily implied yeah. that, that the radiation on Earth was the result of a nuclear war. And Asimov, I, you know, kind of abandoned that later and went, well, no, it wasn't a war. It was just it was just Giscard kind of, you know, <laughs> encouraging people to go out and settle other planets. Yeah. But at the and, same time, we don't know with uh, we don't really know a ton of details about what happened with the Aurorans either. Because by the time we get to the prequels, they're they're pretty upset. They're pretty upset at Daniel for something. And they make it sound like there was a war of some variety. He is super cagey about it, which I find just a tiny bit sketchy. Did you get the um, impression that Asimov had something in mind? Yes, I did. Which we never um, got. Or, or even if he didn't necessarily, he had the beginnings of an idea there that now, you know, several decades later, all of us who are still highly dedicated in this fandom, good lord, AO3 before the uh, before the TV series was small but dedicated. Okay. We all really like details. And some of us have had a field day with it because Well, so how do you, you know, feel about just, the TV show and how and how Demerzel is is Danielle slash Demerzel is presented there? <laughs> so I remember when the casting was first announced for these and uh, when that first trailer dropped and I watched this and my first thought was this is gonna make so many old men so mad and I am living for it <laughs> because I have spent a good chunk of my life having arguments with dudes who are at least twice my age you know when i'm like oh yes i like these books getting into arguments with the with these dudes because i'm over here going this character doesn't have to be a dude there's there's no reason for this character except in you know basically out of out of convenience so i used to make a lot of people very angry by uh throwing out my hot take there that I mean, this character is basically canonically at the very least, if you don't want to say non-binary, although that's really funny in the case of a positronic robot, you know, at the very least not, like gender is not a, a concept in the same way to a positronic robot, really, that it would be to a human being. No, it's like the picture on your desk, the desktop of your computer for a robot. Yeah. And I mean, for some people too, I mean, that's kind of how it is for me. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of, I was sitting there and I'm like, I just, I love this because there is no reason why this character had to be portrayed as male. Mm -hmm. There's no reason when you're doing a, when you're doing an adaptation like that, which I think we kind of knew from the beginning was going to diverge from canon. Or at least I always got the feeling it was going to. So there's no reason you can't gender flip certain characters or do whatever, because you're just, it's an adaptation. You're going to run with it. You're going to tell 
sometimes a different story based on the source material that you have. Well, and it would have been unfilmable if they didn't do something. I mean, they, they, they couldn't have. We tried. <laughs> right. We've tried. And how well has that worked out ever, except for the BBC radio drama, which is the only way my dad had ever engaged with really, us I've before. Never... But uh, conveniently, Asimov doesn't give us a lot of details about people's uh, superficial characteristics. Except for Daniil. Except for Daniil. That's true. We which is how very chiseled um, and very you know sandy hair the whole thing which is how i hope we all figured it out right away in the prequels because i read that description and went certain turns of phrase here sound familiar because yes he looks different but asimov defaults to that same description of his face which i found very funny and as far as the tv show went i definitely really enjoyed this interpretation of the character even though it completely broke my heart in like a million ways just because the implications behind some of the things that she says just like shattered me yeah i mean i think the only way to explain Demerzel's behavior and have it in any way consistent with what we know is that the zeroth law has to do an awful lot of work and, you know, I mean, the, the, the things that are done with her cooperation or that she does herself, a three laws robot would just not be able to do without heavily relying on the zeroth law to allow them to say, this is for humanity. Right. And it comes down to how much can you convince yourself you are doing for humanity? Like what? I mean, it comes down to this with human beings, too, but especially when you're talking to zero fall with the positronic robot, it's, you really, really have to make yourself believe that. You do not have room to question it because the second you question it, it like, it's literally just written into your hardware. I mean, I think about that with uh, robots and empire and how, I think in the last episode when you guys were talking about this, you mentioned that it's kind of a software construct over top but I remember reading even that it physically changed the pathways in Daniil's brain. He could feel it changing. And I just, you know, you, you cannot question that. You cannot allow yourself to question that. And so for Demerzel there, I just, I was thinking the entire time, what has gotten you here? What series of choices have you over time had to convince yourself were correct and had to rely on the assumption that those choices were correct you can't question those past ones because questioning those past choices means that you may not be justified in the choices that you're making now and the weight of that after several thousand years one, you know, if we want to talk about minimalism, even one wrong move, the whole thing collapses. And so, yeah, I, I mean, and that's a good point about minimalism. I'm not sure how you can square minimalism with being first minister of the empire, you know, <laughs> where anything that you do is going to have massive ripple effects everywhere that you can't control. I, mean, I think it spiraled out of his control because he wasn't chief of staff for uh 
Cleon's father, if I remember right. It was other positions. Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. I seem to remember that. It was other positions, but increasingly higher. And we don't even know about before Cleon's father. Because we just know what Cleon remembers. Because again, Daniil is very cagey with details. Yes. And so that means who knows how long he's been there doing that. And gradually you become more indispensable. You make your way higher up and you can't say no to it and you can't walk away from it either. And I think in oh, he does. Cases, in the end, he just does. He just walks. Oh, oh yeah, for well, sure. Harry, you, you take but, <laughs> but until he has someone he feels he can trust with it, he can't. I don't know. And, I got to say putting Harry in charge of the empire strikes me as harmful <laughs> to humanity, but you know, that's <laughs> potentially. Hey, no, a yeah. departmental chair is well qualified to take over the prime ministership. Harry it, declares himself not qualified to be a departmental chair. That's right. <laughs> but how much of it do do we remember? How much of that is Daniil and how much of that was the was the emperor being like this guy, this guy, I trust this guy's judgment. I mean, I guess if Daniil had decided that it was really harmful to have Harry as first minister, he could have stopped Cleon from appointing him. I, I don't know. It's it's it was. Um, Asimov wrote himself into a corner it, with that constantly, but, but yes, yet another corner that he wrote himself into. I'm curious what you guys think of this arc that that uh, Demersol's on. That is in uh, Prelude. You know, he's behind the scenes he's the master he's very active just sort of popping in to save harry whenever he needs him and the whole world is kind of run on marionette strings in a sense from demersal's hands in this first quarter of forward the foundation he's actually very passive right he he doesn't do much he can't he's he tells harry he tells the emperor oh i'm trying to limit jojo but you know we don't know what he's doing actually and it doesn't seem to have much effect and in the end it's harry who saves him through this scheme which comes out of nowhere that we can tell he's it's not it's not from psychohistory being developed or anything it's just a clever ruse that harry came up with well well harry clearly read evidence and then we just <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he read evidence <laughs> he pulled that out of the uh the computer system you know there is a reference to evidence in robots and empire uh daniel yes, and discard discussed that there is a legend that there was about once the robot, yeah. Uh, so Byerly, you, yeah. I mean, you'd think that so you know, Demersal should have picked that out of the memory banks and and came up with the plan himself. But it's Harry who comes up with the plan. So I, I'm just like, what do you think of Demersal's presence as a character here? You know, almost just as he he be, he becomes a little bit little more than a problem to be solved. Wasted. I think it has to do with the fact that that forward is you know Asimov's swan song. I think he knew it was it was his swan song, right? He, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was reading up a little bit because we were speculating on why did he start this as a series of novellas, and we um, and we did that was like before we recorded last week. Uh, where was his state of mind? You know, he 
basically believed that he was dying in, in late 89 when he started Foundation. He had a very dark moment in one of his autobiographies that I read in uh, like December of 89, where he was thinking, you know, oh my God, I'm so close, but I'm not going to make it to 70, which of course would have been January 2nd, 1990. Um, and then February 1990s diagnosed with AIDS and you can, you know, you, you look at some of that stuff that he, that, uh, you know, you know, some of the stuff that came along with the, the first published story there, uh, it's just, you know, the, the, the sense of uh, his sense of mortality is just palpable and it's kind of spaced all the way through spaced all the way through this story. I mean, you, you, you get decline so far, I, I assume that we'll really get heavy mortality toward the end of the book. Right. But I mean, there's the, you know, well, he leapt up on the stage and he grunted and, and then, you know, 10 years ago, he wouldn't have had to grunt. And yeah, I mean, there's all these, th you know, there's all these references to, oh, I'm 40 now. And then things aren't as easy as they used to be. Right. I'm but, getting you know, old. I'm getting old. I'm getting old. Exactly. I mean, and I think he knew he was dying. Harry's a stand in for whatever reason. Hasimov always kind of, in a way, to me, always treated when he was writing Harry Seldom, mm -hmm. and especially in the prequels, almost as an like an like an author avatar a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 what I was I was, I was getting at. So, you know, I think he's building up Harry because he's saying goodbye to Harry, and and maybe he's less saying goodbye to Daniel. And he wants to aggrandize the character that's his stand-in. Right. And I could be wrong. Well, and he had already with with Daniel at the end of Foundation and Earth kind of done that. So that's kind of what's interesting is then the passivity even of Daniel at that point. So the thing that I thought was interesting is um, reading Foundation and Earth after reading Forward the Foundation. So doing kind of a read in chronological order as as relates to the specific character um what i thought was interesting is then you kind of see that shift because in foundation and earth daniel is a little more behind the scenes on things in a way that is not quite as active as you would sort of expect him to be but when you go from like I said, from the um, from prelude to forward, it is this weird thing where it's like he just doesn't do much. Yeah, I I mean I can I can give you a couple of thoughts about that. One is that just from a writing standpoint, this is Harry's story, and he's got to get rid of Demerzel somehow, mm -hmm. and that's how he does it. I I guess you know you could say he's off developing his other plan, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> although you know so so oh, i guess wonderful. the sequels are what 500 years in the future and um so by the by this point in time he does make some reference to it by the way previously in, in prelude mm -hmm. he, he makes a reference that he's got a second plan he must have been developing that plan for a while i mean gaia could not have come about except with a pretty large passage of time so we love a good consensual hive mind <laughs> yes. So, so, so that's Kaya is already up and running. Right? It has to be, right? Yeah, but it, right. You think. At least in the early stages, yeah. 
So, you know, but maybe he's gone off to spend some time with the Gaians to kind of guide them along. And he, you know, that's what he needed to do. So he needed to subtract himself from the picture. I, I don't know. I, I, I think the real answer is it's, it's Harry's story. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have to, this mm-hmm. Demerzel character is too powerful. We have to, we have to get rid of him because we have to concentrate on Harry. Uh, I got I mean, ourselves just, into a corner again, guys. Yeah, no, I'm just wondering, like, did he wake up one morning and go, I know. Harry will be first minister of the empire. That's genius. Let's do it. I, I don't know. I mean, Brilliant. I, I mean, I wonder if he had that in mind at the beginning of forward the foundation or not, or if it just sort of, I mean, knowing Asimov's style, which was kind of sit down at the typewriter and just let it, let it go. <laughs> you know, this may have just kind of come flying out of his fingers and he might've looked at it and went, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now that it's do what I paper, do. Let's do go. what I do and <laughs> say, well, live with your mistakes, coward. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely, with it being the type of story that it is, it's not, it, it is, it does feel, it's not even like Asimov painted himself into a corner. It's the character no longer needs to serve the function that he served in the first prequel. Yeah. Because Harry had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> I still don't think he does in Forward the Foundation. No. I really don't. But well, in this credit. case, he needs to not know what he's doing and not have help. Well, to, to, to Asimov's credit, and once again, to spoil what's, what we're going to read, he doesn't do an especially good job as first minister. <laughs> right, exactly. He really and he needed. He needed to suck at these things without help. Whereas his utter not knowing what he was doing, you needed the you needed the Deus Ex Machina of having Daniel swoop in every Deus, Deus Ex five, yeah. Yeah. yeah, every five chapters or whatever it was to yoink Harry out of trouble right. when Doris couldn't do it. And right. speaking of doors. Yes, please do speak of doors. <laughs> um, you know, I just, there is something about the conversation between Doris and Daniil, where the one where she's talking about how she just can't square her feelings about Harry. And there was something about that that punched me in the emotions at some obnoxious speed where she says that's where she's telling herself that someday he's going to be gone and it's going to leave a void and she needs to not think about it and there is something for a character who when we see into her mind for a character who thinks of herself as I'm not going to say it's that she thinks of herself as less than a human being. Because I don't think she does. And I don't think Daniil does either when we see from his perspective on things in earlier books. But there is almost a sense of I am missing something when it comes to human intuition and that kind of thing, which makes me sad. But um, it's just interesting the way that she thinks about Harry and how she thinks that it's not enough for him 
And that really strikes me as, it strikes me as a queer person, first off, um, just because it hits me in my feels. But also as someone who just loves, you know, the whole <laughs> positronic robots having more complex emotions than they think they do thing. Well, it's funny because, you know, that answer about how when she's thinking about Harry and how having him around makes it easier for her to do things easier. That's the commander data thing. Is, when he talks about uh -huh. friends, he yeah. talks about how having them around makes him makes it easier for him to think. Right more you know it's more pleasant to have them here in the long run than it is like then it more than it hurts to not have them anymore and there's just something about that conversation between them that i really like and maybe i think it's because to me that is the part where asimov writes her the best because there's, there's some points where I'm like, okay, really, we're going to go here. We're going to do this. We're really going to do this. Well, because, I think hmm. from a science fiction standpoint, it's, it's an interesting thing to get inside the mind of someone who's not human, you know, who's got mm -hmm. a different kind of brain and thinks about things in different ways. And, and part of, for me, part of that's why part of why Robots and Empire was so interesting was because we get a lot of that. We really get a lot of Giscard and Daniel talking about how robots think and how different it is from how humans think. And, and we get that here with Doris as well. And um, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's not developed all that deeply, which maybe is kind of a good thing because it lets us kind of fill in. We can fill in some of that ourselves. There's going to be yeah, a little more sure. of it. There's going to be a little more of it. Um, but it, I agree. It's very interesting. And it's one of the more thoughtful parts of the book where, you know, you can see Asimov is really thinking, what is this different person really like? And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that a lot. I almost wish that we had had, because we do get a decent amount of it more, if I remember right, in the second, in the second part of the book. Yeah. Um, but do. I almost wish that there had been you know, just an entire chunk of the book that was her perspective on things. Because right. her perspective, especially when we're talking about my husband's an idiot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like that kind of thing is very, very fun. And I feel I liked what we saw of her thought processes on that. And that's kind of my one, it's not a complaint about the book because I there are other things to complain about with the book for sure. <laughs> but that is one of those things where it's like, man, it would have been really cool to see more of that. Just because we did see so much of it with Daniel and with Giscard. And Doris is the only other positronic robot, really, that we spend a lot of time with. True. Because even in the short stories, I mean... I don't think there's a whole, if I remember right, there's not a ton of them except for, you know, except for Andrew in Positronic Man, uh, the Bicentennial Man. Yeah. Really the only one, you can tell I read both in a different order, huh? Right. Um, but he's really the only other one that we see for an extended amount of time. 
Right. We see a little bit of Stephen Byerly, uh, right. just a tiny bit. Right. But the I mean, robots are stories. usually the robots, you know, the, the, the robots are usually not the viewpoint of the stories. The viewpoint is Donovan and Powell or it's Susan Calvin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the robots. It's the ones who, I, I guess, in a sense, it's the ones who become human. There you go. What else can we say about this section of Forward the Foundation? Is there anything? Well, I just have one last question. Sure. Uh, and that is, is a Coke Icer a Coca-Cola flavored popsicle? No, it's coconut. Um, <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> really? It is, it, it is Coke. It's like a, um, it's a pastry. Yeah, I had so it's a pastry. pastry with coconut icing is what That's it right. is. Is, is that a real thing in the real world <laughs> or is that i mean is that it from should the books? be no that's no that's what it is described as in the books um oh okay no. I, why shouldn't I, that to be a being, thing in the real world i missed that totally because I, I, I was that. just fixated on the word coke and i was like how did coca-cola la, la, it's a powerful corporation <laughs> it's a product placement 20,000 years it's I just had this image of something that was like looked like slag from the iron making process with a little icing <laughs> on it. <laughs> okay, thank you. I appreciate the solution. <laughs> but yeah, no, as far as I remember, it's almost like a donut with coconut icing. Okay, well, I think we I think we're going to need to wrap up because we've got a, a lot of material. And, uh, you know, feel, feel some pity for the poor editor who has to go through all of this. And All right. Well, um, if there's nothing else about Forward the Foundation, we will look forward to reading yet another section of Forward the Foundation in a couple of weeks. Uh, Daniil, Adrian Case, thank you very much for adding your insight and, and punching up our, uh, our podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's been fun. Great. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys. Thank you very much. And uh, we will talk again soon. Sounds good. Good night. Okay. Good night. Good night. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end. This is Alexander Sadig, and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. <laughs>